Welcome to the Ashram Podcast, made possible by the American Society for Healthcare Risk Management to support efforts to advance safe and trusted healthcare through enterprise risk management. Visit ashram.org slash membership to learn more and become an Ashram member. I'm Michael Kreese, and on today's show, we're going to be talking about leadership and the obstacles that have to be overcome on the path to becoming a leader. And we couldn't ask for a better guide than Meg Garrett, Ashram's president-elect and president of Garrett Healthcare Risk Management Consulting. For 33 years, she put her nursing experience, master's in education, and law degree to good use as the vice president of risk management and chief legal counsel for the Johns Hopkins Health System, where she was responsible for designing, implementing, and overseeing all aspects of the risk management program. She continues to provide educational programs in the JHU School of Medicine and School of Nursing and is an adjunct faculty member at the University of Maryland School of Law. She's also been very active in risk management organizations, including service on Ashram's board and serving as faculty for the Advanced Risk Management module. And her board service extends to numerous organizations, including Healthcare for the Homeless, the Villanova University Nursing Board of Consultors, the Maryland Bar Healthcare Law Committee, and others. So Meg Garrett, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. At the root of all of that, career experience, you were a nurse first. And I wanted to start by, as we explore your career, what was the spark that set you on that path to be a nurse and to be in healthcare? Well, it's interesting because I'm a product of uh, the baby boom. And, you know, back in the 50s, 60s, early 70s, women were either teachers, secretaries, or nurses. And I had a passion for people I uh, love, still to this day, love to teach, but um, I decided that I wanted to be a nurse, probably not as much a bedside nurse, but to become essentially a leader to, um, to nurses across the world. What was it about the bedside nursing that appealed to you? Um, just really caring and helping people um, has always been my passion. Um, I'm not certain that you're aware, but I joined the military. I was a Navy scholarship uh, individual at Villanova University in Philadelphia. And I chose uh, Villanova because of their uh, values and visions, um, which was, again, caring for the individual, respect for people, and um, trying to move healthcare forward. Uh, I became a Navy nurse in 1971. Uh, in the height of the Vietnam conflict. I had volunteered at the Navy Hospital in Philadelphia as a college student and saw many individuals who were even younger than me who were coming back from the war with horrendous injuries. This was a time of conflict in the United States where many people didn't believe in the war. And I can't say that I believed in the war, but I believed in the people who got sent to war. And that really set me on the trajectory of being a Navy nurse for eight years after um, I graduated from Villanova. Well, I should say thank you for your service, ma'am. Thank you. And did you know early on that leadership was where you were headed? Well, yes, probably, because I um, I was a 21-year-old Navy nurse ensign stationed for my first duty station in Boston in charge of a 35-bed orthopedic unit at age 21 even prior to uh, passing my boards. At that, my first duty assignment, I was responsible for um, about 18 corpsmen, enlisted individuals, many who were much older than me and probably more educated, but who had been drafted. Um, and 
I was responsible for making sure that our mission was um, completed early. And so I actually stepped into that role quite early. Um, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed mentoring people. I enjoyed having to make decisions with a lot of support from folks. Um, and I enjoyed, I was pride. I had a lot of pride in my team and, um, and it really enjoyed it. From there, I went to um, Charleston, South Carolina, was stationed there for a period of time and um, actually ran the psychiatric units, which again, were fascinating because um, these were people who didn't need all the IVs and all the tubes and so on, but they needed someone who would listen to them. And again, I was responsible for, um, for a number of individuals. And by that time, um, more junior officers as well as um, enlisted individuals. Now, it was around that time that you pursued a master's degree, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm wondering if, you know, you, you were thinking about additional education and eventually the law degree because you knew it would help you, you know, moving forward in your career or were there other reasons for that? Um, I always felt that, you know, the mental health world was an area that we needed a lot of individuals who had compassion and who had a, a passion for helping folks who didn't just need medications, but needed other um, type of therapies. And I um, was stationed at Charleston. I, my first day of duty station was July 1st, 1974. And by July 15th, I had been accepted at the Citadel, which was an all-male institution except for graduate school, in their um, degree in counseling, which I felt that would in enhance me as a, as a human being to learn different theories of counseling and to um, better understand people, their thought processes and so on. And also to help me as a leader know and understand the world around me and my people. You know, I'm thinking in the post-Vietnam era, this was probably before there was a, a, a real awareness of what PTSD even was, right? Absolutely. And we were starting to see, especially in Charleston, we were um, the number one hospital for the Marine recruits at Paris Island. And I would say any given day, over half of my psychiatric unit was filled of those individuals who were coming into the military and understanding. And then the other half were those folks who were returning from the war. My goodness. Had your hands full there. Definitely. So, and then what about the law degree? What set you on that path? Well, I, um, when I was in eighth grade, I mentioned to my parents that I would like to be a lawyer. And again, women were, <laughs> they were nurses, that they were teachers or, um, you know, secretaries. And I, I remember my parents saying something to the effect of, well, lawyers are liars. And I was like, hmm, okay. <laughs> so, um, so the law degree came um, partly I, after my duty station in Charleston, I was stationed at Bethesda uh, Naval Hospital in charge of the psych units. And I met my husband at that time. And we got married and moved to South Carolina. It was somewhat challenging being a um, northern individual, uh, being a doctor's wife in South Carolina, and I felt like I needed to do something else to grow. And um, so I basically uh, had my first child, was 13 months old when I started law school, and I did it because I, you know, I basically majored in sandbox and minored in law. I was very blessed. <laughs> I had the, yeah, I had the GI Bill, and um, I, you know did school pretty much in the morning and in the afternoon took care of my son. My second son was born during exams in law school. 
And um, then we moved to Maryland, and I finished my uh, final year at the University of Maryland. And after that, I had a set of twins right after the bar exam. Mm. And um, helped start the American Association of Nurse Attorneys with several colleagues from uh, Maryland at that point in time. And because I really felt that, nurse, you know, physicians knew how to call a lawyer. Nurses didn't always know. Hmm. And I also thought that the, the world of healthcare law was just developing, uh, especially in the mental health area. Uh, patients were being discharged uh, from every psychiatric facility, especially state facilities, without having proper treatments available to them. So it, it continued, my passion continued for you know, healthcare for patients, as well as hopefully at some point to be a leader in trying to move, you know, uh, really the vision of Hop- of uh, Ashram and Hopkins, safe and trusted healthcare. And I was very blessed. Uh, I got a phone call from the general counsel at Hopkins one day who had heard me speak on behalf of the American Society of Nurse Attorneys and asked me if I'd be willing to come to Hopkins and at that point, I had four children under six, including a set of, you know, four-month-old, year-old, six-month-old twins. And I went for the interview, and they were kind enough to offer me the position. And I was kind enough to accept it, except to say I could only work two days a week because so somebody had to parent my children. <laughs> right. And that was the beginning of a phenomenal career of uh, 33 years. Well, I was going to get around to, as we were going to discuss some bumps in the road on the way to becoming a leader, to what extent being a woman was one of those obstacles. And as you're describing, you know, having to be the mother of so many children and all of that, that's one uh, obstacle. But were there others as well? There were, there were numerous obstacles as be, being a woman. Um, I went to Villanova the first year it turned co-ed. And, um, you know, women were not highly appreciated on the men's campus. Um, so I think that was one of the first challenges and, you know, being an only girl in a family with two brothers, that was a challenge, um, having to, you know, have a voice in those kind of situations, uh, certainly being a woman in the Navy, um, back in war days where the, the men were definitely treated far better than the women. Uh, when I first joined the military, uh, women were not allowed to call their husbands dependents, uh, the female officers that changed sometime in, the in the early 70s. Um, And again, very, very different type of world. When I went to um, the Citadel, there were only three women in the the graduate program that I was in. Um, And then when I went to law school at the University of South Carolina, my class had five women. And then going to to Hopkins, um, you know, very few women in, um, in administrative leadership roles and being a nurse was also somewhat of a challenge. And then being a lawyer with a group of physicians, I remember at one of my first board of trust uh, medical board meetings, a um, physician saying, well, what's worse than having, you know, women at the table, but, you know, women who are nurses and then who are lawyers. Um, <laughs> um, the, following oh, nice. meeting, the following meeting, someone put a, copy of Robert's Rules on the desk, and thereafter, everyone was treated with the utmost respect and dignity. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What a story. You're listening to the Ashram Podcast, made possible by the American Society for Healthcare Risk Management. To support efforts to advance safe and trusted healthcare through enterprise risk management, you can go to ashram.org 
slash membership anytime to learn more and become an Ashram member. And our guest is Meg Garrett, who is Ashram's president-elect and president of Garrett Healthcare Risk Management Consulting. Spent 23 years at Johns Hopkins uh, helping to design, implement, and oversee all aspects of the risk management program. So there you are at Hopkins. You've accepted this job. And when did you start the leadership path there? I would say it was after the first several years. Um, risk management and the legal department were very small at that time. Um, and it was just beginning to surface as, you know, a healthcare model uh, for risk management. The financial community had had risk management for a while, but um, just beginning to show its head at Hopkins, probably uh, late 80s, early 90s. Um, and, you know, lawsuits were starting to blossom. Certainly we were in the age of the HIV epidemic and um, a number of other um, a number of other healthcare issues started to surface. So in addition to what we've talked about already, uh, having some obstacles because you were a woman and nursing background and all that, what were some other things in your way or bumps and twists in the road uh, in your Hopkins experience? Well, I think initially it was, you know, pretty much a male-ran institution, um, you know, used to doing things the the old way, the Hopkins way, which, you know, and a lot of healthcare organizations followed the Hopkins model of healthcare, um, you know, for the individual and so on. I think those were initial, and just really learning the culture was a challenge. And, you know, at the same time, trying to raise uh, small children and, you know, keep up with community activities and social activities and so on. But um, I think that as time, you know, certainly the late 80s, early 90s, everywhere began to see, a, you know, somewhat of a change in healthcare. The whole patient safety movement started moving forward. Certainly, um, Hopkins had its share of tragic incidents that, um, you know, patient safety and risk management came to the forefront in um, board of trustees meetings back in the late 80s, early 90s. The majority of discussions were about finances. By the early 90s, the mid-90s, everything focused to patient safety, patient care, quality of care. How can we prevent something from happening again? And I saw a total change in the atmosphere in, um, in my organization. And I embraced that. And that's where I really think I managed to take foothold as far as be, becoming a leader in the organization. Um, everybody started getting the passion but I think our group really pushed, emphasized, and um, it was passion. You know, we wanted the best health care for our patients. Did we make mistakes? Absolutely. Did we learn from them? Yes. And I pray that we continue to learn from them. So when you did hit bumps in the road and for folks listening, um, what are a couple of strategies for overcoming those? What kind of, you know, support did you get or did you seek out? What, what, what other elements were there that made you ultimately successful? Well, I think developing relationships was number one with, with leaders, with senior leaders. I think them understanding, you know, that I did have a passion for our patients and, and our staff um, and, you know, for, you know, overall quality health care and knowing that they would always hear from me the truth and the truth might hurt in a sense, but um, always knowing that I would, you know, I would be honest. The, my integrity was always 
you know, first and foremost. Um, you know, respect for them. And as a result of that, I think I got, I gained a lot of respect. I also feel that it was very important to listen and not jump to conclusions. Um, and because I listened so often at the, near the end of a meeting, everybody would start looking to me and say, well, what are your thoughts? But I had the opportunity to let other people speak and then was able to pull together basically some of the better thoughts of the whole group and hopefully to identify next steps. There's a lot of leaders who may not always listen to, to the team. And I think that's absolutely critical. And then speaking of my own team, I think my passion and my motivation kept my team moving forward. And I think being a good leader was also exposing them to senior leadership and not taking the credit for everything my people did. Um, and I think that's what's helped them move forward with or without me. So obviously a lot of challenges and pressures uh, being a leader, but I'm wondering what you enjoyed most about it. I loved watching my people grow and I loved being part of a leadership team that changed change the, the focus and, and moved forward patient safety and, and risk management and healthcare. I, I, that is, that's my sense of pride. I think I'm a very humble person, but I am really proud of what we on my team, we at Hopkins um, have been able to do for healthcare. And as we wrap up here, I'm also wondering for folks listening who are aspiring to leadership, what are a couple of concrete steps that you would advise them to take? I think getting invited to the table is critical. When you're in a meeting and someone, you know, starts talking about, be it Corona, be it about an ethical dilemma, be it about whatever, that you, you know, offer to help. And once you start, you know, seeing, once people start seeing you being a good worker, a good, you know, advisor, a good leader, knowing that you can make decisions and so on, that door will be open. But being humble, I think, is absolutely critical. Being respectful is critical. And um, I think those are the ways to get yourself at the table. And then once you get there, you need to continue working in that direction. And like I said, the other important thing is, you know, mentor your people below you, um, your, your staff. One of the things that I did every day that my staff really appreciated, I walked around that building said hi to people. I knew who was having a baby. I knew whose child was having a challenge in school. I knew whose family member had been ill. And I think really being on a personal level, and I'm that, I was that way with leadership as well, being on a personal level so that you could communicate, have some empathy for what they're going through, and be able to pick up the ball for them, I think was critical. In healthcare, you know, making decisions can impact a huge group of people. Even right now, the folks in the corona world and so on, trying to decide whether you're going to open different areas of the hospital, whether you're going to furlough people. These are all challenging decisions, and but you have to sometimes make them. But um, I think that, you know, being there as part of that team and eventually leading that team is, um, is critical. But you have to be humble. You have to be transparent. You have to be honest. And I think you have to have a passion for what you're doing. Well, that's wonderful advice. These days, uh, Meg, they call that a wisdom drop. Yes. (laughs) And it really has been wonderful to hear your story. And I want to thank you very much for spending the time with us to be here today. Well, thank you very much.
and happy Healthcare Risk Management Week. And thank you again. And be safe. Will do. And speaking of Healthcare Risk Management Week, we want to encourage everybody to go to the Ashram website. So that's www.ashram.org slash resources slash HRM dash week. That's ashram.org resources HRM dash week to learn more about the available HRM activities. This podcast is made possible by the American Society for Healthcare Risk Management to support efforts to advance safe and trusted healthcare through enterprise risk management. Visit ashram.org slash membership to learn more and become an Ashram member. Thanks for listening.